Welcome back to the BBFC podcast. Today we've got a bit of a meta episode for you in that we're going to be talking about how we classified a film about film classification. That's right, in this episode we're going to be chatting all about Prano Bailey Bond's debut feature film, Censor. I'm joined by David, one of our compliance officers. Welcome, David. Thank you. <laughs> um, he actually classified the film, so I'm very excited to hear you talking about the classification for this one. And we'll also be joined by Prano herself. Hi, lovely to meet you, Prano. Like the t-shirt. <laughs> Thank you. You're looking very dapper, David. Oh, well, one must try to keep um, up appearances. <laughs> I saw you in the theatre the other day. I came in and stood at the back and you were working away. Oh, it was you. David. Oh, it yeah. was either David said they were coming in with somebody, but obviously we were just like eyes facing front. You, um, you were being very diligent. Well, it's really lovely to meet you, Prana. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's a it, we're really excited to have you on here and we're excited to talk to you a bit about Sensor as well. And I don't really need to introduce you to David because it sounds like you guys know each other quite well. <laughs> It's been some time, though. (laughs) Yeah, it's been a while. I mean, the first thing I just want to ask is, can you tell us a little bit more about Censor and the inspiration behind the film? Yeah, um, it's really funny talking to the BBFC about this. (laughs) So it's really interesting. So actually, the first seed of the idea for Censor came from reading an article that was about the Hammer, Hammer Horror era, and um, the, there weren't many kind of rules at that point around what was cut. But one of the things this article noted was that the sight of blood on the breast of a woman would be cut from films because they believed that it would make men likely to commit rape. And I was just fascinated by this idea and the idea of um, male censors watching this and cutting this to protect uh, other men. And I thought about, you know, if um, these images are meant to make us do terrible things, what protects the censor from losing control? And I wanted to explore a character who worked as a censor who started, maybe they, that they had um, something darker going with it on within them that maybe they thought deep down they were rotten and they started to have a different, more complicated relationship with what they were watching on screen. And so I started reading about censorship kind of throughout the different you know decades over the last kind of hundred years or so and found that fascinating but very quickly landed in the video nasty era because of the you know social panic you know the moral panic that went on around these films and also because I'm a child of the 80s and uh, <laughs> I grew up on a diet of VHS so definitely I'm sure David you've been at the BBFC for quite some time and I think you guys actually met up about five or six years ago to talk like when you were in your research stage um so could you tell me a little bit about what research you did at the bbfc and how that informed your depiction of the officers in censor yeah i mean you guys were really open and helpful actually one of the first places that we came to was the bbfc and anthony fletcher who i co-wrote the film with and I reached out and um, asked if we could come in and, and have a conversation with you. And David and Catherine were, you know, kind enough to give us some time 
So I'm sure you remember that conversation, don't you, David? <laughs> I, I wish I remembered more of it. I think it was, it was some time ago. <laughs> yes, it was myself and Catherine, um, who was our former head of comms, basically. And it was more talking through the procedural stuff, the sort of technicalities, more or less how films are submitted to the board and programmed and viewed, the type of discussions we would have had, the type of discussion we have now, and probably the type of discussion they would have then, and the different ways in which the board worked then, because obviously now we have classification guidelines which are based on research and consultation with over 10,000 people every four or five years, and accordingly they get changed um, depending on, on what the views we get back are. At the time, in fact, at the time at which you were setting censor, obviously there were no published guidelines, so it was a different mm. organisation. The manner of discussion and debate um, was probably similar, but there was nothing to tie it to, there was nothing to actually apply it from, basically, mm. so that, that was a significant difference. But mm. I think you might have even seen one or two of the files at the time. Yeah, yeah, that was really interesting, actually, coming in and looking at... I think we came back about three times to look at files, yeah. because you can only book out a certain amount files in one go so and we were like oh but we haven't looked at the evil dead yet we haven't looked at us as on your grave and that was so fascinating because even though the comments in there from the examiners at the time um you only have their initials when you read enough of the files you start to kind of identify the personalities and you know the i guess that it might be the way that they write about a film or it might be that there's certain things that they were focused on like specific censors who maybe were had a particular angle on violence towards women and things like that and and we found that really really interesting also the evil dead file was particularly fascinating because it of the film being resubmitted and then there was a comment in there about the atmosphere of when it was first submitted and and um how maybe looking back at it a few years later that with they were looking at it with very different eyes. And so it felt like you could almost see how quickly the attitudes within the organisation were changing within these files and the comments on certain films being resubmitted. Yeah, and you talk about, like, atmosphere. There's very atmospheric sense and sensor of, like, the dark, dingy halls and the basements, which I'm not sure, David, would you agree that's kind of how it was back then? Um, I, I think we had more powerful light bulbs at the time than what I remember. <laughs> um, but, but um, yeah, I mean, atmosphere certainly it had. But, um, yeah, um, I mean, the film has a very sort of... It has a dark tone throughout, so that's yeah. all dark. Is a, is a visual metaphor for that, possibly. But um, I don't remember it being overly dark, then, basically. <laughs> we, we could still find our way around without a torch. You know? um, well, we, we were always very much thinking of this office as being a fictional censorship office. It yeah. never felt like... we. I didn't ever want to take on the idea that this was the BBFC. It, it, we, you know, in terms of the way that the censors in censor the film are um working and looking at these films for example they examine in pairs and if there's a problematic title they have a a meeting about it as a group and those were all inspired by the way that you know you you work as an organization and were working during the 80s but the office obviously it's a film and it's a fiction film so i don't think it would have been quite <laughs> the atmospheric if I mean, your office is quite nice and also the rooms are quite small and you don't have... Well, you do have now that kind of main office that's open plan, but when I visited, it was all lots of little offices mm. and we wanted somewhere that was like an open plan space. 
Um, so we, you know, the, the, the set design, the kind of production design, I remember speaking to one um, examiner from the period who talked about um, the idea of watching these films in like these dark rooms with no windows and feeling a bit grubby because sometimes she felt like she was watching soft porn and then she'd leave and it was nighttime. And I kind of took a lot of inspiration from that and creative license from the way she described things and kind of channeled that into this idea that Enid's always in the dark in the film. You know, she's always, she, she's, you never see her in daylight. <laughs> um, and that's a lot to do with her character and the tone of the film and what it being a psychological horror rather than it reflecting <laughs> the BBFC. <laughs> I was hoping you'd say like, oh yeah, it was a dungeon, it was <laughs> horrible. <laughs> it's really interesting that you talk about um, speaking to kind of like previous examiners or compliance officers as we call them now, especially like kind of women from the time. Um, what other research did you do? Were you kind of speaking to people who were around back then in the film industry more generally? It was mainly examiners, censors that I was talking to. Carol Topolsky was one really, really useful person in the research process. And and because, you know, again, there were things like she was telling me that during this period, actually, it was a part-time job. So everybody was coming from like a, she was obviously a psychotherapist. And um, we did explore that in the film. At one point, I think Ina did have another job, but it didn't really work for the story. So we threw that out. Um, but but she was really interesting to talk to in terms of like she loves horror. I think a lot of people think that censors are people who don't like horror and don't like films and just want to cut bits out. But actually, most of the people I've spoken to from the BBFC or from the past love films and, and love horror films. Um, and she was really interesting in terms of her views on horror and, and the idea that horror is actually something quite needed and healthy and like it's a safe place to be scared and that can be quite a cathartic and positive thing, which was really refreshing to hear from somebody who worked at the BBFC during this period. Um, but also she spoke to Neve Alga, the lead actress, and that was so great to kind of get Neve like, you know, for her to have that sort of first-hand, uh, you know, knowledge and conversation um, about how it was to do the role and this idea of watching a film both objectively and subjectively at the same time. And and then, I mean, beyond that, I was watching a lot of um, interviews with directors from the period, like Dario Argento and um, the director of Cannibal Holocaust, whose name I can never pronounce, um, you know, and, and trying to think about creating Frederick North and this kind of how a director from that era create like this dark mystique around themselves and things like that. So um, lots of that kind of thing. That's so interesting. And we can't really do this podcast without talking about the classification of the film. So I'm going to throw this over to you, Dave, because I bet it was quite a strange feeling classifying a film about film classification in our offices. <laughs> so can you tell me how we classified Censor and what it was like recommending an age rating for Censor as a compliance officer? Well, I, I can explain what it's like. It was a really strange experience. Obviously, um, in films, you have, you know, films about police officers, fire officers, hospitals, lawyers, so people who do those jobs will watch those and they'll kind of see part of their life or an aspect of what they do reflected. But it's very rare to actually have a film that's specifically about someone doing the job we do in a film called Censor. And then you sit down and we're, we're obviously viewing it for the uh, for compliance role. 
and then seeing people on the screen having the type of discussions that we will have after watching the film that we're viewing. It, it, it was really sort of quite surreal and a bit of a bit of a head trip, actually, kind of. <laughs> you know. um, so so, so that, that, that was kind of strange. So as, I, as I said um, just now, it's very rare to have films made about sort of a regulatory organisation or a film where a central character um, works for a regulatory or compliance um, organisation. So that, that was strange. Once we, obviously, you know, you get through that, Obviously, we um, view the film as we would normally do in the theatre at the BBFC. We view it, obviously, from beginning to end. We are sort of logging issues as we go along. And then once the film is finished, we then have a discussion uh, in which we analyse the issues and, you know, decide which is the appropriate category. And in this case, the category that's been given is a 15. And the primary issue was the strong bloody violence in the film which you've got scenes in which people are obviously stabbed, decapitated, impaled. You've got sight of bloody detail and sort of bloody images where you, you see the, the um, results of violence. And the emphasis on the sort of blood and violence was beyond, clearly beyond 12A. Um, but we didn't feel that it actually dwelt on the infliction of pain, injury and violence in a manner that exceeded the 15. The supporting issues were obviously strong language. There are, um, the frequency of strong language also took it beyond 12A, but was also fine at 15. And there was also the aspect of sexual threat. Um, and there are also references to sexual violence as well in the film, as well as images of violence against women, which are briefly seen, particularly in the opening credits. But we felt that all of this was um, permissible at 15 and didn't exceed um, the limits of that category. And Crano, were you surprised by the 15 rating? I know people who are surprised um, and have been like, "Why well, it should have got an 18, but I'm not, I'm not surprised. No, I think a 15 is um, appropriate because I don't think it's mega gory and like you say, it doesn't dwell on, on gore. It is really interesting um, and sort of, it's a kind of ironic or maybe just a reflection of the change between the BBFC in the 80s and now that, you know, we have a montage at the front of the film with images that were so problematic, such as like the driller killer, you know, head being drilled and the decapitation from Nightmare and a Damaged Brain, that, you know, they were the, the, the shots being cut from these films and, and being, you know, highlighted as issues. And, and now they're, they're, you know, OK at 15. And I think that's really, I find that really interesting. Um, it, it's a reflection of how things have changed and yeah have we all become more depraved and corrupt i think we're all right <laughs> well, actually actually prana you've, you've kind of gone to the heart of what we do in that we always consider the context in which something appears and obviously the context in which those scenes would appear in the original films would have been within much longer scenes where there might have been much um, longer and stronger levels of threat maybe sexual threat um, and detail in the opening sequence, which actually establishes the type of content that the censor or the censors in the film are actually viewing and assessing. It's kind of broken up, isn't it, with the sort of audio from press coverage, and the scenes are actually very, very brief, and the footage is kind of establishing and illustrating something rather than actually showing it at any great length. It's very fragmented as well. So yeah. we did have a discussion about that um understandably particularly as it comes at the outset of the film but we felt that it did actually contextualize those type of images and provided context for the rest of the film so that you would understand what 
the censors are actually watching because, as I recall, you don't actually see many scenes of what they're actually watching when they're watching it. You get quite a lot of the discussions afterwards. So this at least gives the viewer the opportunity to understand what it is they're watching, what it is they're talking about, what it is they're reacting to. But the manner in which they were shown, the brevity and the sort of the fragmentation of those images as well, um, together with the layering of the audio on top of it as well, meant that the context was wholly different and distinct from how those um, scenes would have featured in the films themselves. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I think it's. I, I was going to ask a question about that scene because that was the scene where, um, when I watched the film, I was like, "Oh, this! I, how have how have we classified this? Like, have we looked back at those films that you know to to see how they were rated when we were watching it?" But I suppose kind of the context kind of mitigated that in that in that case. Yeah. That? It, it, yes, it, indeed. It, it, they, they're also quite rapid fire. It's it, they're very quick, and there's there's credits playing over as well, as I recall. Um, yeah. So there's and, 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 and audio as well. So there's quite a lot of distraction um, from yeah. them. Um, but it was really the brevity of them, and as I said, the context was the key there. Really, that they weren't um, they were divorced uh, and, and and in a way kind of debriefed, I suppose, from their original context, and and that mitigated quite strongly against those. I mean. You know, it would probably be a good quiz question of what what films are these clips from because you know sort of, yeah. um, some of them, as you say, with the Driller Killer and Nightmares Damaged Brain, I could identify. I thought I saw a, a clip from Frozen Scream, but I may well have yeah. missed that. Oh, I did, <laughs> yeah, right? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, you're right. She's watching Frozen Scream after the title sequence, yeah. um, which it, I love that film. I know it's terrible, but I adore it. <laughs> um, which I know that's one that I kind of think, God, how did that get tangled up on the video nasty list? And I know it wasn't, I don't think it was prosecuted. It was a non-prosecuted film, but but it it's, it's yeah, it's not, I don't know. There, that's a whole other conversation for us to delve into, like why certain films were on that list. But, yeah, uh, and that we'll one's... go into the video nasties, definitely. We'll talk a bit more about that because I'm sure you've got lots to say. But I also wonder, because um, Frederick North, the films that you made, kind of like the church scene with the girls, I just wondered, were you thinking about classification when you were making those or like, were you drawing on any video nasties or any particular scenes that you'd seen when you were making those films? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting because... Um, I was thinking about, you know, who Frederick North is and who I could kind of be inspired by. There weren't many British directors who were wrapped up on the Video Nasty lists. A lot of them were Italian and American films. And um, so I looked at uh, Norman J. Warren and Pete Walker as kind of British horror filmmakers from this period and thought a lot about their films in relation to the kind of films Frederick North might be making. However, when I looked at the specific films within the film, so Don't Go in the Church, like you mentioned, for that I wanted to kind of conjure this slightly sort of 70s folk horror vibe. So I looked at Axe, um, which was a video nasty, um, and also Blood on Satan's Claw, um, obviously both of them being with young girls in them and Axe being kind of, you know, uh, visually, like there's some quite iconic images that maybe were influences for some of the images in Don't Go in the Church. And then um, Asunder, which is a later video nasty, um, where she sees Alice Lee for the first time. I was quite inspired by Lucio Fulci films. So Frederick North's uh, <laughs> inspirations kind of, you know, they're, they're quite broad. <laughs> he was inspired by <laughs> a few a few different styles. 
So yeah, going on to the video nasties, because David, you've been at the BBFC now for around 35 years, is that right? <laughs> Man and boy, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, not, not doing the same um, job, the compliance officer role, I was previously on the administrative side, but yeah, in fact, I was saying just before we started this um, podcast, that I actually joined the board, I think, the week after the Video Recordings Act took effect in 1985, wow. so it was kind of really strange. So, Can you um, tell me a bit about the sentiment at the time and how that feeds into the film as well? Well, the key thing, and Prana would know a lot of this because she's done this in her research, is obviously the um, early 1980s is when video first became popular in this country and video rental shops started springing up everywhere, apart from places like HMV and the major chains. Every high street had at least one video shop. You know, even garages had sort of video rental shops. Um, I think it was people who'd perhaps lost their jobs in particular industries who'd got payoffs, basically was using their money to actually set up uh, video rental shops. Now, at the time, there was no requirement whatsoever that videos be rated, which meant that there were lots of um, films out there that had either never been submitted for um, classification in this country, that may have been submitted for classification, but been cut as a condition of classification, but were now being made available in an uncut form, and that were suitable really for adults only, but were actually falling into the hands of children because there was no nothing to stop at the time children actually seeing them or even renting them in, in a lot of cases. So there became public. There were public concerns, and the um, press um, picked up on this, and there were campaigns against what became known as video nasties. And this is also a term kind of isn't always as clearly defined as it should be. There were about seventy titles that had either been prosecuted by the Director of Public Prosecutions, that's the DPP, under the Theme Publications Act, or awaiting prosecution. And some of these were horror films which had never been submitted to the BBFC, or which might have been submitted but significantly cut. And there were also, at the same time, these sort of debates about childhood and morality. And public perceptions became quite split, because on the one hand, there were newspapers running campaigns that banned the sadist video-type headlines... Um, taken over by something evil from the TV set. And on the other side, there was a growing and enthusiastic horror community who wanted to seek out this type of content. So you had the sort of outcome of these sort of press-led concerns around the video, what became known as Video Nasties, was this new legislation which was introduced into Parliament as a private members' bill by Conservative MP Graham Bright and became law as a, uh, became codified as the Video Recordings Act 1984. That meant... It was an offence for a video work to be supplied if it hadn't been rated or to supply rated work to a person under the age specified on the certificate. And the board was then designated as the authority with responsibility for age ratings in, um, on, it was actually 26th of July 1985. So this meant there was a turning point for the board because there was a whole new regime, which is obviously still with us to this day, of videos needing to be age rated before they can be distributed. And the job was given to the BBFC who'd been classifying content for cinemas since um, 1913. And obviously the BBFC's role expanded into our role in the home. Um, and I mean, it's funny that you talked about the headlines because I, there was quite a lot of those in the film, Prano. Like, did yeah. you draw from those kind of real headlines that you saw when you were researching by when you came up with those? Yeah, I mean, actually, at one point, we had a scene where the censors... It never, we never shot it, so it didn't actually make it into the film. But when we were writing, we had a scene where they were discussing the Pony Maniac Strikes Again 
headline. <laughs> and I really wanted to try and get that into the film because that was the, one of the most bonkers, um, you know, little, uh, it was only a little tiny article in, a, in one of the newspapers, but that was um, about a group of ponies that had been attacked and the police statement, um, you know, was something along the lines that the attacker had clearly been influenced by either Video Nasties or The Full Moon. And it's just such a ridiculous um, idea that suddenly, like, the police start believing in, like, supernatural, like, full moons uh, kind of affecting, you know, this uh, crazed maniac who's going around attacking ponies. So at one point we had that in there, but I managed to get hold of a document that had pretty much every single article from this period about censorship. And there are some amazing titles. I mean, Taken Over by Something from the TV set is one of my favourites because also the illustration um, in the paper was like a television with a little kid watching the TV and then this like dark sort of satanic ghost spirit coming out of the TV, kind of reaching out to like get the child. And it, it's just, you know, the, the kind of the hysteria that I think was being communicated in some of those articles is entertaining to read, but obviously was uh, quite serious at the time. Yeah, and I mean, it's so strange to look back at that time period, especially kind of, David, I guess, for you being there as well for some of it. Um, so how, what was kind of the attitude at the BBFC at the time? Well, at the time, obviously, the, 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 book, the BBFC had to, obviously, as I've said, change from merely or generally viewing um, films which were going to be released in the cinema to suddenly this sort of influx of content um, which had to be classified. Um, because there were obviously all this content was on the shelves, and there were actually it was actually staged that certain work, certain films which had been made in a particular time had to come in by a particular date, so a particular date sort of by which they would have to be removed from the shelves. So what happened with the organisation is that it expanded rapidly, more rapidly than any time in its history. So the staff levels went from I think um, having enough people on about sort of two floors to eventually the entire building. And at one point there was even sort of you know talk of having to have an annex basically because there was just such a high volume as a tsunami of um of material which had to be rated because obviously if it was taken off the shelves then the retailers obviously had to know whether it could go back on the shelves with a certificate on it or whether the works were going to be cut in which case there would have to be different works a different film supplied to them um so it really it, it was a real sort of siege a step change it was a massive step change for the bbfc um, and it happened extremely quickly um, because whereas normally when um, the BBFC views a film, it's obviously we view a film and it's due to be released and we have a, an idea from the industry as to how much material is going to be submitted each year because we ask them each year. Um, in this case, we didn't have any of that. It was just simply everything just came flooding in. Um, and and I, I remember at the time, it was, it, was, it was quite amazing, the amount, the volume of, of, of content that, that was being classified was quite astonishing. You can even look back at previous sort of you know, annual reports or, uh, um, at the time, and you'll see how many um, films were actually being rated. It was, it was quite astonishing. I remember seeing one of those um, talk shows with James Furman, and he's talking, it was like evening, and I think there was a deadline coming up and the host of this talk show says, so, you know, what, what are you doing after this? And he said, I'm going back to, to finish, what, to continue watching overnight because 
you know, because they had so much material to get through, had this image of them all working through the night, just watching loads and loads of films with this kind of backlog of years and years worth of, of, of films coming in. I never thought about that really, about how just the sheer amount of content must have come through oh, the oh, doors. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I mean, the, the volume was, was, was astonishing and obviously they had to take on more, as they were known at the time, examiners, obviously now compliance officers, but there were a... Uh, uh, far more than there are now because obviously you needed more people to actually deal with it because the industry um, wanted this material to go to be really there was obviously the, the normal material which would come in a normal course of the uh, business obviously but there was also this backlog which which went on for quite a few years um, which obviously they wanted to get back on the shelves because obviously if they were taken off the shelves then the shops wanted to have something they could rent out basically or, mm. or sell yeah so it's interesting that we talk about kind of the, the amount of content and things that we're getting back then. But Prana, I wondered what your perception of the BBFC is now and kind of how different you think it is maybe to back in those video nasties. Well, I think the C stands for classification now rather than censorship, doesn't it? So I think that speaks volumes in terms of that it, it feels more like it's an organisation that's kind of creating a guide guidelines or not like you know guidance in terms of what people might expect to watch within a certain film i can only think of a few films in the last few years like a serbian film being one of them that have been cut so i think it it, it seems like the organization is much more kind of open and public facing than it used to be and uh less about censoring and more about kind of guiding the viewer which you know i think is a, a good thing because if you've got kids you want to know what the film contains and whether or not it's appropriate for that child and some adults might want that for themselves so um i have nothing against certification i i don't i don't really believe in censorship um personally but yeah it seems like less and less of that happens and how about you david how do you think we're a different organization well, to the one you started at well Pr- prana's hit on hit on this really i mean we now are not about censorship we're um as Brian said classification um organization we provide helpful advice and information to help families make informed decisions about what to watch we're a very different organization now compared to the bbfc in the 1980s and certainly censors portrayal of a board of classification in that we are open transparent and there to help everyone in the uk particularly uh, parents and families, choose these age-appropriate films, videos and websites so they can obviously view what's right for them and avoid what's not. So that's a significant change. I think part of it is also contextual because obviously when the board was um, designated um, under the Video Recordings Act, there was a lot of material which had and was still subject to prosecution or seizure and prosecution and the BBFC was required to seek to avoid classifying material which might fall foul of the criminal law. So I think the, the tensions and pressures then were very much that material would have to be cut in order to render it different and distinct from that which was being seized and prosecuted. And the board of the BBFC was obviously aware that the actual the designation had come about because of works of a horror variety and that there were still those concerns, particularly close to the time when when the Video Recordings Act came in. So there was much more of a sense of or sensitivity towards that type of material. And I think what's also changed is obviously the, um, the, the BBFC guidelines, which are reviewed every four or five years, in which the public tell us what they expect to see at particular categories or what they don't expect to see, and we react accordingly at the time. 
there were no guidelines. So mm. um, it, it was, I would imagine it would have been more difficult. I wasn't doing the job back then, but um, with guidelines that are actually underpinned by the research and consultation, um, it's certainly easier to assess uh, material than I imagine it would have been then, really. Well, guidelines slightly sort of protect the, the tents or the examiner or the compliance officer now, don't they? In, in the case of Enid, she's uh, blaming herself for, um, you know, for, for things that happen in the film because she doesn't have guidelines to go on. So it's down to you, the individual, to use your own judgment to decide what, you know, what's okay or not. And if something happens off the back of that, then that means you're blaming yourself for, for those decisions. So I think it's, yeah, it's those those guidelines kind of very important. I think there were only like two rules or something in this particular period in the 80s for the censors to go on. I wondered, Prano, if you had any questions you wanted to ask David or David, anything you want to ask Prano? <laughs> Uh, you first. <laughs> oh, God. What do I want to ask, David? Put you on the spot. Um, are there any... Uh, maybe this will put you in a difficult position. What, were there any video nasties that were on that list that you think just should not have been on that list? Um, this is a difficult one. They were on the list because they had actually been, obviously, seized and prosecuted, and therefore it's not for me or for the BBFC to sort of... A naysay what a directed jury um, decides. It's obviously, and also context again, this was at the time, we're talking a time of what, 30 to 40 years ago now, where I suppose people understanding, knowledge, awareness of that type of material was more limited. We now, in a, a, a an age now where virtually anything and everything is available, also advances in special effects, changes in effects, and um, people's attitudes are different. It's very difficult to say because without knowing the circumstance in which those films were prosecuted, how the jury were directed um, any time. It's very difficult for me to say, you know, even if I wanted to, whether <laughs> these shouldn't have been prosecuted or not, because I, I, I wasn't there at the time. I wasn't in the part of the country at the time. Um, I wasn't in the court and I, I wasn't, um, you know, a, a witness to what, what how they were directed. It's so. worth saying, though, that a lot of the video nasties now are rated. Like, a lot of them have, yeah. are now classified and some of them are in some cases are not are not even at the real adult level some of them are 15s and things so yes, I, think I mean it's just attitudes yeah. change don't they well so. it's like i've always said to um, people yeah prana talked to us at the start of this actually about hammer films well hammer films in the 50s and 60s were x-rated which was um uh, originally it was 16 and over and then it became 18 and over and often cut for um, as a condition of classification. And they were considered, you know, certainly films like Dracula in 1957 was considered really shocking. It was that first horror film in colour, it had blood, it was quite sort of sexualised. Times change though, and obviously, so you talk about 60, 70 years on, the power mm. to sort of shock, appall, and the impact, overall impact of the film is significantly diminished over time. And mm. many of those. Hammer films, certainly, if they're not 15, some of them are even 12 rated now. I know the 1957 Dracula, the Terence Fisher directed one, is, um, tw is 12A when it came in on, on yeah. the film. So, and you know, we, we, we reflect the changes in people's attitudes and also the, sort of the passing of the years. Um, it, yeah. it, it, it's all a question of context. Um, conversely, you still get certain types of material 
which perhaps at the time might have been more leniently treated, which may well attract a higher classification rating now. Um, So Mm -hmm. it it does cut both ways um, because of changing attitudes. um, And that's towards slightly different things aside from horror. It may be towards issues of discrimination, for example. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, it, 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 your, your question is an interesting one, but it's very difficult to say what, what, what shouldn't have been on there because obviously I wasn't, I wasn't there at the time. I know, it was a really mean question to ask. You can't really say, but um, yeah, very interesting answer there. And I think we've got to wrap up now, um, but we just want to say thank you so much, Prano, and we've really enjoyed speaking to you. It's been an absolute delight. And when is Sensor out again? Do you want to tell us a bit more about when people can watch it? Yeah, um, it's out on August the 20th, so it will be out in cinemas, um, in hopefully most cinemas, uh, fingers crossed, um, but keep an eye out for it um, to go and see it on the big screen, because it was made to watch in the cinema, and I really hope people will want to and feel comfortable going to see it in cinemas. Great, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, lovely to see you. Lovely to see you, Thanks. bye. Bye, Brian. see you soon. Bye, see you soon, David.